Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Finding a wife like you when he is so bald. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> These must be my nieces. <gasps> You're Agnes. You're small with big eyes. And it makes me want to put you in my pocket. You can't do that. I'm too big. Oh, he did. I can tell that you are a little mischievous. <laughs> We're going to have to make a little trouble later. So mature, I'm guessing. Why, you 15? 15? She's 12. She looks 12 and will always be 12. So, Drew, this place is amazing. I mean, you just walk through the doors and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> uh, it's nice, I guess. Sure. I'm not really into things. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our final installment of Got at the Box Office 2018. We're grateful to have you here. And unlike uh, the other movies that we've looked at in this series, there are some movies that you need no go, go no further than the title to find a God message. The title of this movie is Despicable Me. And sometimes the title itself provides us a tremendous opportunity to get a theme and a message from God. Have you ever felt that way about yourself? Despicable? Have you ever felt that way about your behaviors? About your attitude? About your thoughts? I suspect all of us in this auditorium have had what we would call our despicable moments in life. Perhaps a definition for the word would be of help as we get underway this morning. So the word despicable simply means morally reprehensible. It means fit or deserving of being despised. And according to the Bible, the human heart and the human nature, apart from God, is morally reprehensible. It is fit or deserving 
of being despised. So if we separate our humanity, our nature and our heart from God himself, the Bible tells us that the behavior of humanity is capable of all sorts of despicable things. So I don't know about you, but I'm sure your heart has been moved and saddened uh, by what we've watched happen in our country, especially over the last number of months, in the escalation of the gun violence that's taking place across America. It moves all of our hearts to recognize that there is a problem that we have in our country. And you know, here's the reality. We can change laws and we can change policies, but laws and policies will not change hearts. Guns do not kill people. People kill people. I'm not suggesting there may not be a need for changes in laws and policies. What I am suggesting is that is not going to solve the problem of human nature. Human nature, according to Jeremiah, looks something like this. Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. But I, God, search the heart. I examine the mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. Now, every single one of us here today actually have two sides to our life. We have a public side and we have a private side. The public side is what people experience of us. The private side is what God knows about us. It's the part of us that looks a lot like a puzzle. And God knows and sees every single piece of the puzzle of our life. In fact, psychologists refer to the public side of us as our persona or our personality. And interestingly, that word persona comes from the Greek language and literally means a mask. Our persona or our personality is our mask. So when I was 10 years old, I won my very first trophy in a community Halloween parade. At the end of the parade, there were awards given for various categories, and I won third place in the ugliest category. Be kind, be kind. Um, I actually that day wore a skeleton in the Halloween parade. Now, truth be told, all of us here today have some skeletons in our past that are pretty despicable. I don't think that many of us would argue with that statement this morning. And if you would, let me just ask you a few questions. Are there things that you have done in your past that make you blush? Are there things you have said in your life that you wish you could take back? Are there thoughts that you've had that if somebody could read your mind, you would be mortified? The truth is, all of us have these skeletons that are in our closets, these ugly parts of our life that come out of us. And even as followers of Christ, there are times that there are parts of us that can look pretty despicable. Here's the ugly truth. The ugly truth is that we all have a bit of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in us. In other words, we all have somewhat of a split personality. Perhaps another way to say it is all of us at times can be two-faced. 
And we can be that way even with our brothers and sisters, even in a place of worship. It is possible. Jesus' brother James actually speaks about this when he says this in James chapter 3. We use our tongues to praise our Lord and Father, but then we curse people whom God made like himself. Praises and curses come from the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, this should not happen. I want to read to you an honest confession this morning by a man that I shall leave nameless. I want to read to you a letter that he wrote in his confession. Here's his letter. I know that God is good, but I am not. I am full of myself. I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. The power of sin keeps sabotaging my best intentions. I need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Do any of the words of that letter resonate with you about how you feel at times? That letter, by the way, was not written by a mass murderer. The confession did not come by a rapist or pedophile. That confession comes to us by way of one of the most influential people in history. It was actually written by an individual who was a well-respected leader. He was a, an expert in law, and he was considered a shrewd politician. He was a brilliant individual who actually became an entrepreneur and a, and a published author. In fact, 14 books are credited to his authorship. Every single one of those books made its way to the New York Times bestseller list. Tens of millions of people have read his books and have been influenced and inspired by his books. In fact, he is considered by many people to be one of the most influential individuals that ever lived. He traveled and lectured and taught throughout the known world. By now, you may be already catching on that this particular letter comes to us by way of a book that was written that we have in our Bible called the Book of Romans. Those words are taken right from Romans chapter 7, verses 17 through 24, where Saul of Tarsus, who we know better today as Paul the Apostle, is writing his own honest confession. 
He's saying, listen, I love God, but I recognize there are times in my life that I find myself moving in a way, making decisions that are dishonorable to God, and they are right, uh, just downright despicable behaviors. I want to do the right thing, but I struggle. I don't want to do what's wrong, but sometimes I find myself getting tripped up along the way. Welcome, welcome to the world of humanity. Paul actually goes on to say this in one of his final letters that he ever wrote, one of his final books. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul had an honest appraisal of himself. He recognized the depth of God's grace in his life, but he also recognized his own depravity, his own need for God continually in his life. Wednesday morning, America's pastor, Billy Graham, slipped from this life and was advanced into heaven. His ministry spanned an entire century. Think about that. 99 years. And I'm just curious, how many of you here have been influenced in some way by the ministry of Billy Graham? Can I see your hands if you have some way been influenced by his books, by his writings, by his crusades you've gone and you've, you've been ministered to by him? So many of us have been touched. And I think it's interesting because as we think about Dr. Graham, a man who was considered by many a spiritual giant. He was interviewed just a number of years back by Larry King. And Larry King actually asked him and made this statement to him. said, it must be really rewarding for you to look back on your life and have no regrets. Listen to how Dr. Graham responded. He said, I am the greatest failure of all men. I was too much with men and too little with God. I was too busy with business meetings and even conducting services. I should have been more with God, and people would have sensed God's presence about me when they were with me. Here is a man that, by many standards, was a tremendous giant of the faith. And yet he does something very similar to what the Apostle Paul does. He recognizes the power of God's grace despite his own tendency towards sin, his own despicable ways. And this morning I think there are three habits that Paul the Apostle practiced. There are three habits that I think Billy Graham practiced as well that actually allowed them to confront and deal with the despicable me in their own lives. And this morning, I want to give you these three habits. 
Because I think they are the habits that help each one of us take an honest appraisal of ourselves and yet be able to experience the power of God's grace. Help us to be able to overcome those parts of us that are yet not yet like him. Here's the first habit. The integrity habit. The integrity habit. Back at our one prayer in January, we spent time bringing before the Lord our hearts and saying, I, each of us want to come up with a word, a way that we're going to live our lives, a word that we want to reflect and define us for 2018. And we spent time together talking and then praying into that word. My word that I felt the Lord gave me for 2018 was the word integrity. And I recently learned that integrity is more than a character issue. Integrity is also a courage issue. Integrity is the courage to meet the demands of reality. It's not just the character to do that, but it's also the courage to lean in with, with honesty into those things in your own life that are desperately in need of God's help. Integrity is a soul word. It's a soul word. It is a word that has to do with our true authentic self being lived out in our public self. It is the integration of the backstage of our life with the front stage of our life. And so many of my years were spent working on the front stage of my life. And yet what God wants us to do is he wants us to put our focus and our attention on the backstage things, the things that other people cannot see, so that along the way we can experience integrity, integration, the harmony of all parts working together in a healthy way. So John Ortberg in his book Soul Keeping actually calls the soul the operating system of our life. The late philosopher and author Dallas Willard actually said, your soul is the program, like the program of a computer. You don't even recognize it or think about it until it starts to mess up. And the moment it starts to mess up is the moment we start to say, hey, what's going on in my heart? What's going on in my soul? And what God desires for all of us is to practice the habit of integrity that says, I'm going to live on the front stage like I'm living on the backstage. So one of the issues that Jesus had with the Pharisees, with the religious elite, was the problem of integration. They did not do well of living the things they asked other people to live. One of my mentors when I was a young pastor actually made this statement. He said, if you think practicing what you preach is hard, try preaching what you practice. The Pharisees didn't preach what they practiced. And Jesus had a word for it. The word was hypocrisy. And the word is taken from first century Greek theater and actually means a person who is a poser, an actor, somebody who is pretending to be someone they are not. Jesus always called hypocrisy lack of integrity for what it was. 
But on the other side, Jesus also lifted up integrity when he saw it. So in John chapter 1, there's this incredible story of Philip who Jesus calls to follow him. Philip is so excited, he goes back and he finds a guy by the name of Nathaniel and he says to Nathaniel, hey, come and see, I have found the Messiah that Moses talked about, the Messiah that the prophets declared was coming and I want you to meet him. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And immediately, Nathaniel's response is, Nazareth, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? It would be like you and I saying, can anything good come from Dayton? Can anything good come from this particular city? We couldn't imagine anything good coming out of that particular location. And as he's walking to meet Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says this. Now here is a genuine, authentic son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. What was it Jesus saw in Nathanael? Perhaps the better question is, what did he not see in Nathanael? He didn't see hypocrisy. He didn't see a poser. He didn't see someone who was saying one thing and doing another. He wasn't seeing someone who was just simply going along with the crowd because it seemed like the right thing to do. Here was a guy who in his own conviction is being honest to confess, I don't see how anything good can come from Nazareth. And Jesus doesn't condemn him for it. Jesus actually lifts lifts up as a model that he is a guy who is actually practicing the habit of integrity, living with integration. If we're going to deal with despicable me, what we have to do in our first habit is we have to practice the integrity habit. The second habit that I want to encourage us with that Paul the Apostle modeled for us that Scripture teaches is the humility habit. The humility habit. Let me ask you, how would you define the word humility? I think modern definitions today terribly miss the mark of humility, in my humble opinion. When I was in Bible college, I had a New Testament professor that actually said this when he was teaching one day on humility. He said, humility, the moment you think you've got it, you've lost it. It's kind of an elusive trait, isn't it? It's a character trait that is so difficult at times to put a clear framework to it. But Jesus does. In fact, in his teaching, the very first message he ever gives, he lifts up this character trait of humility as one of the most important attitudes that will receive God's blessing. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Every man in this auditorium is probably right now thinking, I don't want to be known as someone who is meek. 
of all the things I'd like to be known for, I, I don't mind being known as a strong person. I don't mind being known as a, a good leader. I don't mind being known as a person who knows where I'm headed in life, being a great decision-making, a problem solver, whatever it is you want to be known as. But most men don't say, I want to be known as meek. And yet Jesus said, it was one of the greatest attributes that we're going to get his blessing. As a type A personality, I can tell you of all the Beatitudes, it's the one I struggle with the most. It's the one I find most difficult. And I especially found it difficult in my early life because I didn't understand what the word meant. I used to think that, that meekness meant that you were soft around the edges, that you were weak-minded, that you were a doormat. The word meek literally means controlled strength. Controlled strength. What was Jesus saying? Jesus saying, blessed is the person who practices the habit of humility, who recognizes who they are, who recognizes who God is in their life, who recognizes what God has called them to be, and then doesn't need to flaunt it before others. I've been struck recently by a story that I was reading in the book of Numbers. It's a story that actually punctuates this quality, this attribute in the life of Moses. Here's what it says in Numbers chapter 12, verse number 3. Now Moses was very humble. More humble than any other person on earth. Can you imagine God looking down from heaven? And God looking for someone that he wants to say, here's the most humble person. And can you imagine that God pins that on you? You think he would swell up with pride? Not Moses. Because true humility understands who they are, understands who God is, and understands what God has called them to be and doesn't need to flaunt it. And what's so remarkable about this statement, about this observation, is what God sees in Moses and why he points this out. I want you to look at the two verses that precede this. This is the part of the story that just caught my attention. While they were at Hazaroth, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because he was married. He had married a Cushite woman. They said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us too? But the Lord heard them. Marion and Aaron are Moses' brother and sister. The object and the source of their criticism of Moses was his selection of spouse. Moses had married a woman from the land of Midian, which was also known as Cush. And she was then considered a Cushite woman, which simply meant she was an ethnic minority. She was actually not a Hebrew. She was considered a Gentile. And she likely had a different, darker skin color than Moses. So here is a criticism that comes to Moses based upon his wife's ethnicity. Moses is being criticized, being judged, and even being discriminated against simply based on race and culture. 
And sadly, very little has changed in our country today. And can I tell you the source of all discrimination, of all prejudice, the source of all of it is pride. When you boil it right down, there is one insidious thing that causes all racism and all prejudice, and that's pride. The Bible says he's being judged based on his, his interracial marriage. And what Moses does here is remarkable. Moses doesn't say a word. He entrusts his case to God. And as you read the narrative, God deals with Miriam and Aaron. Let me give you another aspect of humility. Humility is the ability to absorb criticism and adversity without the need to defend yourself. Humility is the ability to absorb adversity and criticism without the need to defend yourself. Easier said than done, right? One of the character traits that I've really been dialing in on recently and working on is my own defensiveness. That there are times in my life that I become emotionally triggered, and there are two things in particular that I have identified that emotionally trigger me. One is when I feel disrespected, and the second is when I feel that my integrity is being questioned. When I feel emotionally triggered by those things, my natural tendency is to defend myself. And I'm learning how to lean into my own weakness. How to trust God more in that area. It's a work in progress. But it's something that I believe that with God's help, all of us can face our own defensive tendencies. And just like Moses, we can practice the habit of humility that says, I do not need to jump to my own defense. God will be my defender. And that's God's promise. Paul the Apostle in Philippians chapter 2 actually says this, verses 3 through 5 and verse 7, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have this same attitude that Christ Jesus had. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. I want you to notice what Paul does here. Paul gives to us the perfect role model for humility. He says, be humble, but then he tells us, here is your role model. Your role model is Jesus Christ. Can you think of any better role model, an example of controlled, controlled strength than God confined to human flesh? Can you think of any example in this world that would tell us what meekness and controlled strength looks like except God coming down from heaven, wrapping himself in human flesh, and then being confined and giving up the privileges of his divinity while he's here on earth. That is controlled strength. And so here's Paul's advice. Here's Paul's advice. Do not make your goal to become more humble. Make your goal to become more like Christ. 
Because as you become more like Christ, you will become more humble. Our focus needs to be becoming more like Jesus. And as we make that our big ambition, as we lean into our own humility and recognize our own despicable things inside of us, we then begin to experience God's strength, controlled strength, coming through our lives. And it's one of the greatest testimonies. So Paul the Apostle practiced the integrity habit. He practiced the humility habit. And there was one final practice that both he and Billy Graham modeled in his life. And that is the confession habit. The confession habit. They did more than just acknowledge it was there. They actually admitted it. They confessed it. Confession is about bringing your true, authentic self, including your despicable parts, to God. It is about bringing your whole self to the Lord in honesty and openness and transparency and confessing to God what has happened in your life, bringing it to him first and foremost. David actually did this. Psalm 32 actually tells us how David practiced this. Verses 3 through 5. When I kept things to myself, I felt weak deep inside. I moaned all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My energy was drained as in the heat of summer. Then I confessed my sins to you and didn't hide my guilt I said, I will confess my sins to the Lord, and you forgave my guilt. Found a game called the Game of Guilt. Looks pretty old, but it's really not. And actually, it's an interesting uh, game because one of the mottos is it's coming whether you like it or not. The reality is guilt's part of life, isn't it? It's something that every one of us will feel from time to time, but it isn't a game. It isn't a game. And it isn't just a feeling. It is a condition. It's a position. And what David actually is clues us into here is so powerful, is he actually clues us into the fact that when we confess our sins to God, he doesn't just forgive our sins, he actually, the Bible teaches, removes the guilt. Now the court of law can declare you guilty or not guilty, but what they can't do is remove your guilt. Only God steps in, acknowledges our guilt, but then takes it away removes it completely. So this idea of confession is first and foremost vertical, but it's also horizontal. Because if we're going to practice the habit of confession, we need one another. I need you. You need me. And you need each other. And that's actually what the Bible teaches. Listen to what James says. Chapter 5, verse 16. Make this your common practice. Make this your common practice. 
How many of us is confession a common practice today? In Protestant churches, in Protestant circles, it has gotten completely lost. We don't even think about confession, especially one to another. The Bible says we're to make this our common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. That's profound. If you want forgiveness, you go to God. But if you want to live together whole and healed, you got to go to one another. We've got to be willing to confess our faults horizontally and confess our weaknesses, the despicable parts of us, to one another so that we can live as a community of believers, whole and healed the way God desires. Confession is more than just admission. It is about seeking the prayers because we desperately need the prayers of one another. If we're going to live the kind of lives that have integrity, that are filled with humility, that help us to live in a way that brings honor to God. As we close this morning, I want to circle back to our friend Paul who wrote his letter in Romans. He asked at the end of his confession a really important question. And he actually gives us the answer. Here's the question he asks in Romans chapter, chapter 7, verse number 24. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Here's the question. Is there no one who can do anything for me? That question needs to be answered. And Paul gives it to us, verse 25. The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions, where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. What he is saying is this, where sin abounds, Grace all the more abounds. Where sin enters in to the stage of our life, grace comes and takes center stage. Grace actually enables us to become a person we could never be without God. It empowers us to live a life honorable to God, even when our hearts are being pulled in a direction that's contrary to what God desires. The pull of sin is powerful, but the pull of grace is even more powerful. And what Paul is saying is this, who can help me? Who can deliver me from this body of flesh? Who can give me uh, security and give me hope that I can live and overcome these besetting sins in my life, these contradictions that I experience? Who can help me? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who helps us, who can do it and does do it for us. The cross of Jesus Christ is our remedy to those despicable parts of us that are in desperate need of God's grace. I want you to bow your heads this morning and close your eyes. This morning as I pray, I want to pray into your own life and into your own heart this morning. Because I suspect there are people in this auditorium, many of us, 
who understand and can identify fully with Paul. We can identify with the confession that my heart gets drawn away at times, that I, I tend to live into and make decisions that are not honorable to God. I am influenced by things that are contradictions of the faith I claim to have. And what we can rest assured of today is that through Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. We are overcomers. God allows us to experience his forgiveness and his grace, which brings about his peace in our hearts. I'm going to ask you this morning to take just a moment, then I'm going to pray. We're going to pray a corporate prayer together. But I'm going to ask you right where you're seated this morning as you're in this private altar time with God. Is there something in your life today that you need to confess? Is there a thought, a habit, a decision, words you've spoken, things that you recognize this morning are in need of God's help and God's grace? If that's you, don't be ashamed of it, but don't ignore it. Bring it to God. Bring your guilt to God. Let him forgive it and then let him remove it by his own power. Because only God has the ability through Jesus Christ to remove the guilt and erase it, remove it from our hearts. And with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer together with me this morning. I'd like you to repeat these words after me. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me from myself. Save me from my desperate ways. Save me from the desire to save myself. I confess to you today, God, that I cannot do this without you. I am stuck. I am lost. And I need your help. So I invite you this morning to come into my heart once more. I pray that you will transform me. That you will cleanse me. That you will remove my guilt. Make me whole by the power of your spirit. I place my hand in your hand. I will trust you with my life with my future. So thank you, God, for making me whole today. I'm grateful for your grace. In Jesus' name. And now, Father, I just pray that your face would continue to shine on each of us, that your power, Lord, would go before us and cleanse us and give us a path whereby we can walk lives of integrity, humility, and confession. These are practices, God, that we must choose. And thank you for the example of Scripture, and thank you for the Apostle Paul, who gave us a way forward to face and to confront and to deal with those despicable parts in our hearts. 
Thank you for the light of your presence that shines on our darkness. Thank you for transforming us by your grace. Bless each one of us as we go today, Lord. Keep us in the palm of your hand. And we'll give you all the thanks and all the praise for it. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. I bless each of you. Thanks for being here. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.